This is the good, the Baz, and the ugly. I'm the Baz. Well, that no, I'm Baz. That sounds weird if I were going around calling myself the Baz. Anyway, uh, look, this podcast is filled with uncensored interviews with experts in particular fields or real-life stories from people who have inspiring personal tales to tell. It covers various topics and life stories that I've really dug, you know what I mean? And I think you'll dig them too. Just so you know, this podcast is for grown-ups, or at least people over 18, as it may contain adult themes, sexual references, and strong language. Fuck yeah! You didn't need to curse. No, I just wanted to. Sheet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to hear is true. Hold it now, wait, hold it. I know you're gonna dig this. I think the best thing for me to do is to introduce him. What the... What's his name? Baz Ashwami. It's not Baz Ashwami. It's Baz Ashmawi. Welcome back to The Good, The Baz and The Ugly. It's episode 24, season 4. Still very excited. I'm very prepared today. Last week I didn't know what number it was. This week, I do. Every day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. Mahi. New year, new you. Well, let me ask you a quick question. Ever been punched in the face? Surprising if you say no. (laughs) Really? Have you ever been maybe inspiring? Maybe you went to the gym, you did a boxer size class. Sometimes, like I'm not saying are you, are you have you violence in your life. It's not that dark question. I'm just saying in a sporting way, have you ever received a no. uh, one 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 in the smacker? No. 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 You should ask me. Oh, yeah. Have I ever punched someone in the face? Have you ever punched someone in the face? Don't be scared. No, I haven't. But you have a glint <laughs> in your eye, like you you're. It's, it felt like a very layered statement. Um, John, John, you ever been punched in the face? Max punched me in the face. There you go, Matt. I've been punched in the face many times. I don't know what that says about me, but it wasn't nice. I was doing MMA for one of my shows, Wingman. And I was doing uh, training someone, uh, Emma, to be an MMA fighter. And when we were doing sparring, I was practicing real bad. I was killing the, the heavy bag, killing the heavy bag. And then went sparring and got a punch in the face and all my plans yeah. <laughs> flew out the back of my head and I thought I'm not that fond of this this getting punched in the face thing isn't for everyone it's not. but on the flip side of that I came across a book Jonathan Jonathan Gotchell is a very uh, distinguished research fellow in the English department of Washington and Jefferson College he's the author of an amazing book called The Storytelling Animal um, a New York Times Editor's Choice and finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and The Professor in the Cage, uh, one of the Boston Globe's best books of the year. He's written for or being covered in The New York Times, uh, Scientific American, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, uh, The Chronicle of Higher Education and The Millions. He is an, a very, a very appreciated writer. He's the man. Um, Gotchel has also appeared on popular podcasts like Star Talk, The Joe Rogan Experience, Radio Lab. And now the good, the bad, and the ugly. We chatted. We had such a laugh. We had a great time. We roared in in that manly. Oh, oh. Are you allowed to do that? Is is there a problem with me roaring, or being a man? Is that a problem now as well? Don't be fragile. I'm fragile. I'm not fragile. I'm just not sure what you're allowed to say anymore. Am I allowed? She didn't say fragile. Said fragile. 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 What the, Sorry, what, what's man. the word no, you said yesterday? Crazy. Please. <laughs> you're being great. No, tell man. me that. I said I was. I saying a quote from the other day. You know that the the there's a there's a quote by um 
Socrates, right? And I was quote, tell me. And she went, I went, you know Socrates? And she goes, no. Hold on. I said, you know Socrates? And she goes, no. I went, Socrates? And she goes, no. And I went, Socrates, the philosopher. And she goes, oh. Socrates? Socrates? So you thought his name was Sarah No, I, I actually no. It would be something like that. What is it? Sukrat. Sukrat. It would be so great if it would be so great if you pronounced it properly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, racist people. There. Okay. We're gonna <laughs> cancel you. I feel we've gone on a really weird tangent. Uh, anyway, uh, I had the most amazing chat with Gotchel. Um, we really enjoyed it. I think you're gonna love it. Look, this is that chat. Jonathan, I've been so excited to talk to you because I, I, I'd heard about this last year or earlier in the year sometime and for whatever reason, you're a busy man and, and, and I was dying to chat to you. So for those that don't know, um, the professor in the cage, why do men fight and why do we love watching? Is there, where, where, where will I start? Let's start with you. Tell me what your your background is and how you came to want to write this book okay well um first off let me tell you one thing about i'm a writer that's, that's mainly how i uh describe myself and you mentioned that we've been trying to have this conversation for a long time and part of it is being busy and part of it is to be honest what kind of freak becomes a writer you know it's a guy who likes to hang out in his basement as I, where i am right now and write books and kind of shy and scared of the world. <laughs> so, so I, I do as little media as possible, to be honest. I, I don't, I don't do a lot of it. I should do more. It would be really good, you know, professional and business decision to, 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 to do that. But, you know, it, it kind of takes a toll on me uh, to do that. Um, so, yeah. But I, you I, can I'm, have that anonymity while, while being yeah. a writer, right? Because the proof is in the pudding with your book and that's why people read them and that's why well it's sort it's sort of true i think i think it's getting less and less that way I mean, there's no question that um i've paid a price by not doing social media by not doing a podcast of my own by being uh, sort of reluctant to go on other people's podcasts i sort of have an old-fashioned uh reclusive uh nature um but on the other hand you're right writing is one of the few professions in which you can have all of the benefits of fame, like real fame, all the money and the glory uh, with few of the costs. You know, the most famous writers in the world can be totally anonymous out in the world. And you, fit, and you have somebody like, you know, Tom Cruise or something like that, who's just a prisoner of fame. He can't be anonymous anywhere. So in some ways, yeah, it's a, it's a very good deal that writers have struck. I'll tell you why I fell in love with it. I, I'm a TV presenter, obviously. I did a show uh, called Wingman, where I help people fulfill dreams that they might have. So there was one woman and she came from a, a lot of domestic violence in her past and she felt weakened by it over the years and she wanted to learn how to fight. So I know Conor McGregor and SBG, which is down the road here in Dublin, and I went to John Kavanagh and I said, John, I have this lady, do you think you can train her to fight in, yeah. in like a couple of months? Like, do you think we can train her to have a cage fight in three months? And he was like, well, we've fucking never done it before. But if you and her are willing to come in here and train, then absolutely. Yeah. Then I read about parts of your book. I'm going to get through your book, but parts of your book. And I was like, this is genius because there was a certain there was a certain feeling I had when I walked into the gym for the first time. And 
it w- I can only compare it to a starting a new school and just feeling yeah. very scared and alien to everybody else. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. what what I wanted to know is how did you how did it come about for you? Okay, well, so I'm an English professor by training. I'm not. I don't profess anymore. About 10 years ago, coinciding with the publication of The Professor in the Cage, I left university teaching to write full time. And part of what The Professor in the Cage was about was about a guy uh, in a cage, um, a metaphorical cage of sort of his life, um, middle midlife crisis type stuff. Also a sort of dead end uh, teaching job that I had and trying to basically uh, enter this other cage, the, the fighting cage, in order to break out of these ruts. And so the book was sort of a, a memoir of a guy who uh, isn't naturally brave, um, doesn't have a lot of natural physical courage, trying to do an experiment to see if I could learn it. You know, was this a skill that I could pick up by going into a dangerous situation, a fearful situation, over and over and over again, and doing the reps? Uh, could I eventually learn to be brave? Um, and the whole idea for the book started because, you know, I, I, again, I'm working as an English professor. I'm 30, I, I was just shy of 40 years old, and I was sort of in a, a dead end uh, teaching job. And I would look out the window of my office every day. And then one day, you know, I hadn't even noticed it happening, a cage fighting gym opened up directly across the street from the English department. And I started having career suicide fantasies almost immediately. I had this fantasy of me walking across the street in plain view of all my colleagues, going into the the cage over there and fighting these guys, you know, sparring with these guys. And they'd be able to see it. They'd be able to see it from the windows. It was that close. I mean, you could take a snowball, throw it, hit the place. And I thought that juxtaposition, first of all, it it made me laugh. The juxtaposition of all this civilization of the English department directly across the street from all this carnage and savagery of the cage fighting gym. I just thought it was funny. And it made me laugh to think of my colleagues looking out the window and seeing, seeing me fighting. And I said, said to myself, ah, that's how I do it. That's how I'll get myself fired. That's how I'll get out of this job. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the courage to quit the job on my own, but maybe I can do something outrageous enough to get, to get fired. That was sort of, that, I mean, that was a big part of the project. The other part of the project is represented in the authentic intellectual questions I had about it, which are represented in the subtitle of the book. Subtitle of the book is, the title is The Professor in the Cage, and the subtitle is Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. And both of those questions were inspired by sitting there in my office, looking out the window, sort of peeking through the the curtains at these guys across the street and thinking to myself, what kind of maniacs would want to do this? Who would want to willingly get into a cage with another man half naked and basically fight practically to the death. Um, Cage fights end at the point where the, the opponent is rendered so helpless that the other guy could kill him with his bare hands with only token resistance. Isn't there just something in that that makes your balls go tight though? Isn't that just like, like on a most primal level? Like I I completely get what you're talking about, but isn't there just something where you just think, why are we like that? Like, did you have, were you a UFC guy? Did you have a subscription? Were you watching? Do you like a bit of boxing? Did you, did you kind of, did you enjoy watching fighting? I did very much, and I always have, but it was always a sort of guilty pleasure, and it was always a sort of intellectual um, void for me, because I would always ask this question, you know, like, 
you know, sometimes you watch a cage fight and you don't feel good about it. You watch and you're just like, ooh, that was too much. That was too brutal. That was too ugly. I, I, I'm pretty sure that just took years off that guy's life. And if it didn't, it took points off of his IQ. Um, he's going to suffer long-term consequences for this. So I always felt morally conflicted about it because those guys are not going into the cage or the ring and having these brain damage contests unless you and I are footing the bill, unless we're actually paying for it. It's the only reason they're doing it. So the second part of the, the, the question was, the first is, why do those guys want to do it? Why, why are people, especially men, uh, drawn to violent forms of competition as competitors? And the second question, this is just as important, um, maybe, and it's even a bigger question because it applies to everyone. It's pretty freakish people that want to go in, in the cage and fight. Very, very few people want to do this, but a lot of people watch it. And an even larger percentage of people consume other forms of violent entertainment. So if they're not watching real fist fights in a cage, they're watching ersatz, fake, pretend violence in a, in a film, or they're engaging in it in a video game. We have this enormous thirst for violent entertainment. And I was interested in this thing where people, almost all of us, we're civilized. We say, oh, we, we abhor violence. We hate violence. And yet we're just slurping it up, slurping it up in our entertainment product. So the question is, you know, why are we like this? Why do, why do, we, why do we like fighting? Um, and why do we have this enormous appetite for entertainment violence? And again, we, 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 we pretend to despise. There's this narrative at the moment of everyone talking about masculinity and, and being comf comfortable and being vulnerable and, you know, you can be whatever type of man you want. If I like ballet, I should be able to like ballet and still feel like a man. I'm not very good at DIY. My missus says all the time to me, you know, um, would you not go and fix that? And I was like, are you fucking high? No, I like you bought it how you saw it. Am I Mr. DIY? Do I walk around with like a holster and loads of tools? No, I don't. So like, that's the type of guy I am. But... As camp as I am as a guy, I enjoy I enjoy a box I enjoy watching a box match. I love the UFC. Like you, there's times I cringe and watch it and I do think, oh, that's a bit too much. But kind of like gorging on Christmas dinner, I plow through and seem to still watch <laughs> the next fight and, and keep going. So yeah. what what leads men to enjoy violence the way we do? What do you, did you come to any kind of conclusion yourself? Yeah, I mean I do think I do think you know you you uh, unleashed a barbaric yop you know you just yelled Rawr! you know um, I do think there's something sort of primal about it. Dana White, the 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 um, head of the UFC, said years ago that you know just imagine a hypothetical situation where you're walking up to a corner um, on a city street, and on one corner uh, there's some little girls playing hopscotch, and the other corner somebody's playing shooting some baskets in the other corner. Um, two people are kissing, let's say something, you know, and on the fourth corner, uh, there's two guys having a fist fight. Um, and the question is, what are you looking at? No matter how compelling the things on those other corners of the street are, the most compelling thing in the world to see is that fist fight. <laughs> you, you might not even like what you're seeing, but it always pays to attend to violence because there's always a, a dangerous spillover. So those girls, those girls playing hopscotch over there, they may be cute little girls and might warm your heart to look at them, but it's not going to spill over and endanger you in a way a fight might. So um, th I think there's something about it that, that hooks us at that level too, that it's just sort of self-protective to pay attention to violence. Before, before you went into the gym, because the first day you went into the gym, 
what what was your what was your view of people who went to the gym or went to uh, sorry a cage fighting gym a fighting gym? What was your did you have a, a preset opinion of what you thought those people were going to be like? What those men and women oh, were oh, for sure like? for sure yeah I went into this whole project expecting to write an anti an anti cage fighting anti violence manifesto I really did I I wanted to expose this I didn't I didn't respect it. I didn't respect it in myself, my, 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 my fanship, my viewership. And I wanted to sort of write this book about the dark side of, of human nature. And I ended up writing a book that was really quite celebratory. Um, so I expected to go into the gym. Um, like you said, it's like, it's like, it's a very scary thing to watch, walk into a fighting gym for the first time. It's a little bit like going to a new school, but a new school where everyone is absolutely authorized to beat the shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what I, Jonathan, do you know what I always remember? The first day they said, have you done any training before? And I said, yeah, no, like I, I train in the gym and all that. And then so the lads said, well, that's handy. If someone breaks into your house, you can show them your box jumps. And I was like, oh, oh. Right. and I just shrank. Like I could feel myself shrinking because I I'd yeah, like, but, yeah. but so it described to me, you walk into the gym and what happens? I was, I, oh yeah, it took me, it took me some time to screw up my courage. Again, I've, I've, I'm, I, I almost don't like admitting this. Um, it embarrasses me a little bit. It always has embarrassed me. But I was never a person who was very brave. And I was never a person who was very strong. And so like when I was a kid or a young man, if there was, you know, if there was ever any chance of getting in a fight, you know, I got away from it. I, I, I wasn't interested in being involved in that. And that was smart. And it was the right thing to do. And I, I feel that honestly 100% in my head. In my heart, it's always felt like cowardice. It's always felt like I was a wimp and a and a coward, a guy who ran away. Um, and I've and I, and I lost a lot of respect for myself in those moments. Funny Again, that though, because that's just like that's I'm, just demasculating, right? That's it's not true, but I understand. I I was the exact same yeah. type of kid growing up. I like getting on. I, if we went out to the club, I'd rather I'd rather chase girls than than get in a fight. Like I had friends who just yeah. wanted to fight that night, and I was like, I just have no interest in that. So it's funny you say that because I think a lot of men feel like where well, maybe I'm not brave or I'm not courageous or I'm not a risk taker in the, in that scenario. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And so part of what I wanted to do in the, in the book was to um, sort of redeem myself for those times in the past where, again, deep down, um, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, I felt like I had behaved like a chicken and I wanted to see if I could uh, be brave. And so going in there, I did expect to find a bunch of sort of knuckle dragging Neanderthal types, you know, guys who were kind of violent. And this was a socially acceptable way to uh, be violent. Uh, to, to hurt people. Um, and I just didn't find that at all. I found a bunch of ordinary young guys. Um, demographically, it was very, uh, very stereotyped, you know, young men from 18 to 22. I was, again, almost 40, and I was by far, you know, the oldest guy in the, in the gym. A lot of them were coming from the same place that I had been. They were, they were smaller. Uh, they'd been pushed around. Um, and they wanted not to get in fights, but they wanted to be able to defend themselves if, if they had to. They didn't fight with anger or rage or violence. And this is a hard thing for people to get a, get a hold of because if you were to imagine, or like anybody out in the audience right now, if they were to imagine, you know, squaring off some with someone and punching them in the face, it's almost impossible to imagine doing so unless you had really, really negative emotions circulating through your brain at that moment. You were either really, really scared or you're really, really furious. 
And none of those, neither of those things applies in a cage fight. You're not fighting um, because you're really scared, although fear is part of it. Um, But you're certainly not in most cases, especially at the lower levels, uh, fighting out of a sense of rage. You're not trying to, you're not, you're not trying to hurt this person because you're angry with them. It's a, it's, it's a fist fight without anger. It's a, it's a strange sort of thing. It's a very humbling experience. Uh, you, you know, part of it is is on the ground. Say, so if you say you, you're just wrestling with someone, right? Uh, uh, it it's quite humbling for someone half your size. Oh, like I'm six two, right? As I'm a big big enough guy, I, I'm heavy. You know what I mean? I'm a heavyweight. <laughs> if you were to put me in yeah. a fight, I'm a heavyweight. Like, You're a heavyweight, you know? exactly. Yeah, you know? Little guys were wrapping me up and choking me out. Oh, yeah. And I was like, what oh, the yeah. fuck? And then I'd see this little guy get humbled by someone else. And I could mm-hmm. see the cross effect of, dude, no one could really have an ego because there was always someone that was better. There's right. always, there, you know, it's, right. it's, it's a very, it kind of, it takes away a lot of your shell, doesn't it? A lot of your ego, you have to lose it. That's right. Yeah, no, it's tremendously humbling. There's almost there's almost nothing more humbling than that moment where, again, you know, this happened to me all the time, what you're describing, people much smaller than me, much weaker than me, because um, I have, you know, done quite a bit of gym training and so I'm, I'm strong, um, or I have become strong uh, in, my, in my adulthood. But they would just, I wrote in the book that they would control me and I'm, I wasn't joking. In the same way that I would control my four-year-old daughter in uh, roughhousing, if we roughhouse my little daughter, I'd hold her down and say, ah, you know, rough her up a little bit. And there's uh, a moment like in the, you know, one of the first sparring contests I had with my actual coach, um, you know, a couple months into the thing, and you know, I, I had been sort of uh, feeling like I, d- I hadn't been having enough actual cage action. You know, I thought people were kind of taking it easy on me, so I told them not to. Um, and we sort of sparred and, you know, and again, the domination was just so total. I couldn't, you know, if I took my gloves away from my face for a second to try to throw a punch, you know, I was instantly smashed and it hurt, you know, and it's like, he was hitting me hard and, you know, you could feel the brain damage happening. You, know, you can feel it happening. You can feel your brain shaking around. You can feel the instant headache. You can feel your face, you know, caving in with the punches. Um, you can feel the blood uh, flowing from your nose and at the end of it, you know, I was roughed up and I was exhausted. It's so tiring. I'd having, having fights is so tiring. Um, at the end of it, I thought to myself, I walked away from him and I said, I'm only alive right now because he wants me to be. Wow. And so when you lose a fight like that, it is not like losing in ping pong. It is not like losing in basketball. Um, because what has happened is you, you've been brought to the brink of death um, by another person. And it is humbling. It is humbling. There's a weird meditation to fighting, right? Because I, I don't know if you found this, but like w- when you step onto a mat or you step into a cage, all the shit that was going on in your fight with your wife, uh, your, your daughter's homework from last night, you know, and, and, and stuff going on at work. As soon as you step into a cage, all that goes pretty fast out of your head. Because yeah. all you're thinking yeah. about is, I don't want to get hit by this dude. Um, I want to hit him as hard as I can. It's there's, there's peace of mind in it in some way, isn't there? Well, it's a weird paradoxical peace of mind, though, because I, I only had one actual fight. I had lots and lots of sparring. Some of it was uh, very intense, in fact, way too intense. Um, but I only had one actual fight. And it was uh, the weirdest thing I've ever been through. It was just so psychologically weird. So in some ways, there was peace of mind, but not really, because for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks beforehand, I was terrified. You know, I'm, I'm just living in a state of absolute uh, 
dread and terror. It's like knowing that you're going to be in a car crash at 9.30 p.m. on November 14th, and you just don't know how you're going to come out. You know, you could come out fine. You know, uh, you could lose pretty gently, or you could be really sort of maimed. Um, you could, you know, have a spinal injury. You could have a brain injury. You could blow out your knee, you know, all, all these kinds of things. Or you could just humiliate yourself. You could fight so poorly or so or, or, or reveal yourself as a coward. You could just show up and hide against the cage. So uh, there so, are all so the things you could lose or you, you could, how you could be affected. What, what, but what were you looking for? What did you think that you might get if you, if you went in there? Not even win. If you just went in there, did the fight, held yourself well, like in, was there a redemption or something? It was just to prove something to yourself? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, you know, there's part of me when you're writing a book like this where you're, you're, you're strategizing. You know, you're going through the process for real. Um, but I would never have done this, to be honest, if I weren't going to write a book about it. Um, I, I, I was curious about, you know, fighting, but I, would, I wasn't curious enough to go through it without having a sort of professional reason to do so. Um, so, you know, when you're writing a book like this, you also have to think like, how am I actually going to portray this? You know, like, what is my tone going to be? What episodes am I going to focus on? Which episodes am I going to ignore? And one of the things I started, you know, like about a year into it, maybe I had my fight like 15 months into it. So I had five times as much training as your, your woman did. Um, I started to get better. You know, I'm not a bad athlete. Um, again, not, I've never done any kind of macho sports, but I'm, I was always an athletic person. I'd played sports my whole life and I'd stayed in fairly decent shape, although I was getting sort of middle-aged and paunchy. Um, but I started getting better. I, I, I wasn't terrible at it. Um, I especially wasn't terrible at the grappling uh, elements. And as, as the project wore on, I became more and more concerned that I might win the fight. I might win the fight and I didn't want to tell that story because I was worried that the story would be like, Oh, her wimpy college professor becomes hero. And con you know, it just, I didn't like that story arc. So I became more and more concerned that I would win the fight. And then when it came close to fight time, I went into the fight and I realized I desperately did not want to lose. I desperately did not want to lose. I desperately did not want this arena full of people to see me, you know, beaten down or held down and choked out. Um, I, my ego couldn't take it. And I did lose the fight. And afterwards, and, and to be honest, it was one of the more, uh, maybe this talks about, you know, how easy my life has been, but it was a, it was a traumatic episode for me to lose this fight. Um, you know, because I wondered afterwards whether or not I had, whether I lost because of lack of skill and a lack of, um, a lack of uh, experience, or if I had actually lost because of a lack of courage. And here's why. I, I was good at grappling. I was better, much better at grappling than the striking. It takes a certain kind of person to be good at the striking. You have to be, be willing to get into say, say to another man, like, hey, you know, let's stand up in front of the cage, let's stand in front of each other and have a knockout contest. Let's see who can inflict more brain damage on the other guy before you can inflict that brain damage on me. And that was just a mentality that I couldn't get into. But the wrestling was interesting because you can take a person down and you can kind of control the position um, without taking much damage. And so that was my whole, my whole uh, approach was to try to, you know, to, to do this, but to do it in the most prudent way possible. I would try to get the other guy down. I would try to hold him down. I wasn't going to beat his face in either. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to kind of retain some innocence. Um, I, I wanted to try to work for submission, some kind of choke, some kind of lock. So I take this guy down in our in, in the fight, and 
um, you, you know almost immediately when you get on the ground with someone if you're out of your league. <laughs> and I got on the ground with this guy. It's like, I was like, oh, shit. The way he's moving, the way he immediately started attacking me and attacking submissions, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm out of my league here. This guy, this guy is going to submit me. I'm not going to submit him. Even though I was, you know, I had gotten a takedown. He was, he was clearly going to submit me from the bottom. So I did the smart thing. I stood up. I backed off. Um, and at that point, if I was experienced or brave, I would have said, okay, there's no winning on the ground. It's time to have that brain damage contest on the feet. <laughs> but instead, almost immediately, he comes forward. He throws a kick. I shoot another takedown. I double-legged him really well. It's a great picture of me, um, like shooting through, blasting right through his hips. And he's airborne. And, you know, it's just like a, a great tackle. Um, but it was, you know, this sort of glorious moment before the end. <laughs> and, you know, he, we hit the ground. And, you know, almost immediately he taps me out. See, I, um, I would I would think in my head that as soon as you walk into a cage and you close the cage behind you, you've kind of proved nearly everything you need to to yourself at some level. Yeah. Because this is where, yeah. like, you know, if they're wrapping your hands and you know they're prepping you, like this is where people shit their bags and they go, God, I I just don't think I can do this. Like I don't think I can walk into that cage and they leave us alone. Yes. But by you doing that, they lock the door. Behind. As soon as they, they lock, lock that door, the, you're in an elite yeah. club of people that have done something. Way, yeah. Because all that anxiety you were talking about, you were talking about the kind of the psychological aspect of dreading it beforehand yeah. this is where a lot of people would choke like what were those feelings beforehand oh uh, every everything you said i again i did not you know cover myself it wasn't like i, I swaggered into this thing you know I, I i was really worried that i wouldn't go through with it like that at the end i might like fake an injury or maybe not even fake an injury but have it like an actual injury but pretend to myself that it was so serious that i couldn't go forward and i imagine i i actually had like worries that i would go into the cage and they locked me in, but I could still run, run away <laughs> in circles around the, around the cage. And by the way, it's only about a five and a half foot fence. I could jump over that thing, you know? <laughs> so I did worry that, you know, that, that, that I might do that. On the other hand, I worried about other things too. I remember having this horribly intense dream again, cause I was starting to feel like I was not terrible at this. And so in the, in the week leading up to the fight, I had all kinds of fears for myself, but I also had fears for him. I also had fears for my opponent. And I had this dream where I was winning the fight and I had him up against the cage and I was just beating the life out of him. I was beating the life out of him. My gloves were bloody. I was bloody to my elbows and I'm hitting him in the face and hitting him in the brain over and over and over again. The kid won't go down. He won't go down and the ref won't stop it. And I just keep bludgeoning him. And I woke up, you know, full of fear for that too fear of like, what if I actually hurt this person? And, you know, um, how would that, that, that would be as maiming for me as getting maimed myself. I did not want to hurt this kid. I liked this kid. Mm. I respected him. Um, we're Facebook friends now. Um, you know, it's, this is, this was nothing personal. I did not want any long-term consequences for this, but, you know, so, so, so there's all kinds of chaos going on in, in my brain. And then when you go into the cage, so you're absolutely right it all turned off. It was really kind of cool. And afterwards, um, I, it was like having an altered state of consciousness. It was like doing psilocybin or MDMA for the first time, some sort of powerful hallucinogenic where 
once I got into the cage and the, and the guy said fight, um, my fear disappeared. I didn't have fear anymore. But I also had entered into this weird altered state of consciousness where kind of time slowed down and I couldn't hear anything. I was deaf. Uh, my, my coach, by the way, was yelling at me from my back saying, basically, don't go to the ground with this guy. Don't go to the ground with this guy. And, I, I, and, I, and we watched the video afterwards. He's, he's bellowing. I never heard it. I never heard it. And I had this incredible uh, tunnel vision, you know, where um, peripheral vision. What's happening is your brain is telling you there's only one important thing in the world. All of your cognitive resources must be focused on it. And that is that guy across the cage from you who's trying to kill you. It must be something yeah, that in day-to-day -day life we don't really, that we don't kick into that gear. But, but once right. you're in that scenario, obviously, it, you know, it, ju it just turns on, you know? Yeah, soldiers, so soldiers talk about it all the time. It's, 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 it, the, the thing that I experienced is exactly what soldiers describe, kind of as the fog of war. It's the heightened focus, that heightened, yes. wow. Yes, heightened focus on one thing, which means total, totally ignoring all other things. Wow, I've got so many questions. Like, if someone, like, uh, from a positive point of view, right? Because we'd be similar in the fact that I would never have probably ever done any type of cage fighting or anything like that or any practice and I didn't do a fight I might add and I went back yeah. to do it again and still didn't do a fight again so all that fear and anxiety and shit you're talking about I'm the other guy who went oh actually do you know what I'm really busy with work at the moment I can't do it and in the back of my head I'm still I still want to do it because right. I honestly believe there's, there's a fear that we have regardless of if it's jumping out of a plane or writing a book or whatever it is it's only when you kind of overcome your own fears you learn something very deep about yourself you learn that you prove something to yourself that gives yeah. you lifts you in some way so if if you were t advising someone who said listen i really like to do it wh what are the positives that you got out of it i did i did gain um a lot of self-respect you know i did gain some self-respect it wasn't perfect self-respect again um, you mentioned that thing about, you know, if you go into the cage at all, you've already won. You've already, you've already proved something that most people wouldn't do. And a lot of people told me that after the fight. But again, I always had that question of, did I shoot that second takedown because I was inexperienced, which I can live with, or did I shoot it because I did not want to get into a fist fight? As I put it in the book, did I do this because I'd rather lose a wrestling match than try to win a fist fight? And that's a question I'll never know the answer to. Um, but within, within reason, I did gain some uh, self-respect. Um, I also had a great intellectual adventure studying this, studying the history of, of, of violence, the history of violent entertainment. And I had uh, the, the, the quite educational experience of, of, of getting in fistfights. You learn something about human nature in fistfights. You learn something about yourself. And I had the uh, experience of, and this is all too rare, the experience of changing my mind. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I sometimes get worried that, am I just so set in my ways that I'll never change my mind about anything politically or, you know, whatever. And in this book, I really did change my mind about things. You know, that I, I went in with a very clear thesis about this being a really sort of the, the representing this sort of microcosm of the darkest side of human nature. And I left it kind of having turned 180 degrees where I was more focused on the 
what this told us about the good sides of human nature. It, it, it's very rare that you can do that, isn't it? Because we do become complacent, especially as you get older. You must have got shit fit as well, right? You must have got in good shape. I did, I did, but it's so temporary, you know? It's so temporary. So yeah, I mean, uh, I had, you know, I even took a selfie of myself, like right before the fight, where I had lost, you know, maybe like 35 pounds. Wow. And I took, I was with a friend in the hotel room, another fighter. And I took a picture of myself shirtless and I apologized to him for, it. and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'll never look this way again. <laughs> and there was, and, but you know, and that was cool to look that way, to look the best you can possibly look, you know, as close to like, you know, how you've always fantasized about looking, you know, or like how you wish you look. But the other part of that is, you know, when you see these fighters who look like that and boy, I don't know, does anyone have better bodies on average than UFC fighters? I mean, it's sort of like a, a sort of masculine physical ideal, uh, almost like the statue of David, uh, a lot of these guys. What's interesting about it, though, is like I was in that hotel room, uh, those guys are at incredibly unhealthy weights. Uh, these guys look this way because they've just been through this process of shedding a huge amount of body weight mostly in the form of water. So they go into these fights, hugely shrunken down, hugely dehydrated, and their brains are dehydrated too, by the way, which means that every time they're punched, their brains are smaller. They're literally smaller and they rattle around in the skull and it causes more brain damage. So uh, yeah, I was probably never looked better, one, and at the same time had rarely been so unhealthy because you know I was, maybe I had good cardio. I did have good cardio. Um, but I, I was also beating my body to death, you know, really doing wear and tear on my body. And also I was massively and de dangerously dehydrated. I had done things like taking laxatives, um, trying to, trying to make weight. What role do you think violence has played in human life? Like you've obviously done a lot of research on this, but, but yeah, what's, what's your take on it? Well, my take on it is um, dual, you know, so there's, there's two sides to it. One is, you know, things like uh, there, there's, there's non-consensual violence, uh, things like warfare where an army attacks another population or where a mugger or rapist, you know, attacks some, somebody. There's nothing good about this. Uh, what I'm mainly talking about is in the book is consensual forms of physical competition, you know, so there's a sense in which, and this is kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about a fight without anger, that a cage fight, you know, really isn't violence even um, because it's consensual. No one is, no one is a victim in this exchange. And so that was what I was studying was these, this sort of weird uh, pattern humans, especially men have had across cultures, across centuries and every society you can name where young men in particular engage in these really exuberant and often dangerous forms of, of physical competition. And what they're doing is they're going through rites of passage, they're, they're proving themselves, they're displaying uh, for people uh, in, in their society, they're, they're competing for fame and a fortune. I, and I do see this as a, as a largely positive thing. Um, if you remove rites of passage from society, young men in particular tend to make up their own. 
they will go out and get really drunk. They'll drive their cars around at hundred miles an hour. Like your friends, when you were young, they'll go out and get in fights in nightclubs. Um, to me, it seems safer and more constructive to have this happen in a, in a gym uh, where it's supervised by elders um, who can keep things within within balance. And you exert it, right? There's something, I, I love a fighting gym. It's, it's the nicest experience I've ever had is going to a, a, a fighting gym. Just the crack with the lads. I, I enjoy I working agree. a bag. I like kicking. I like I doing, agree. I like, you know, all that light sparring. I, I enjoy all of that. I just didn't particularly like the heavy sparring was my thing. I like hitting yeah. people. I'm yeah. not so fond of being hit. Do you get me? No, I agree. I agree. I couldn't, I also was very, I was inhibited about being hit. And I was also inhibited about hitting because you spend a lot of your life, you know, realizing, oh, it's a very, very serious thing to punch another person in the face hard. It's very serious. If you do that, basically you're, you're giving them permission to essentially kill you. Um, so it's kind of hard. It was hard for me to get over my inhibition against hitting people uh, too. Um, but I, but I agree completely with you. The, the fighting gym was such a positive place for me. It was a place where I went and met my friends and we, and we laughed and we talked and we uh, did basically it, and, and the sparring, even when it was intense, didn't feel like a fight. It felt like the roughhousing that I did as a little boy. Yeah. It was sort of this giddy, exuberant, you know, fun type of thing. And by the way, never got so many hugs mm. as I did in a gym, in a cage fighting gym. Never got so many bro hugs. And, you know, it's a, it's a place of aggression and competition and violence, but also raw affection um there's so much affection in, in a fighting gym the other thing i found is i found fighters in general to be very balanced do you know yeah. like quite calm quite controlled like what you say like if you get in a fight on the street it's usually based on something not that I get into fights on the street, but it's usually based on something very emotional. You know, fuck you, traffic. I get out of my car, I wave at you. You wave exactly. at me. Next thing we're having a fight. Do you know, it's, it's coming from... Well, like you said at the very start, when you're fighting in a gym, it's all... Like, it's the first thing you do is you fight with anger and power at the start, isn't it? The first day. And you realize that that doesn't yeah. work. That just exhausts you. And they just play oh, with you. So do you know? Yeah, right? Isn't so it? Yeah. But I agree with you about fighters. Um, again, that was one of one of the, the sort of stereotypes that I had to overcome was expecting these guys to be, again, kind of violent guys, kind of mean guys, kind of like the high school bullies that I knew that used to, like, shove me into the lockers. You know, I expected to find those guys. I didn't find any of those guys. Um, they're nice guys. And I, I never, in the three years that I was at the gym, I never heard, and I would have heard, I never heard of anyone in that gym of dozens of guys getting in a fight outside the cage. It just didn't happen. They weren't swaggering around looking for fights. And then part of it, part of the reason for that is the gym had already taught them they were tough. The gym had already taught them they were brave and they didn't need to go out and prove it in the bars or on the streets. Did you, I, I'm fascinated with what being a man is and, and did you learn anything about men from, from your time cage fighting? I, I think I did. I mean, how I thought, I thought of the book as, you know, many things in one, one was a sort of book about sports, about the psychology of sports. One was a book about a, a personal memoir of a, of a guy trying to find courage. Um, and one thing the book was also about is a book basically about gender studies. It's a book about the science and psychology of masculinity uh, and why men are the way men are. 
And to me, the, the reason that this was such a good uh, segue into that subject is because if anything sort of boils down the essence of pure, raw, unconstrained masculinity, it is something like a cage fight. And again, just to throw out the caveat here, I am aware women fight. Um, it was less the case uh, when I started researching my book. Uh, that was barely a thing. And even now, it's, it's still uh, fairly fringe in comparison to uh, men fighting. Uh, so it's a, there's a basic sort of gender gap there. There are women who like to fight, but a much smaller proportion. There was a couple of um, women that were fighting in, in the gym I was in, and they fucking terrified me. I remember oh, yeah. someone joking one day, they're pro fighters, like, and someone was joking it one day, going, do you want to spar with? And I was like, are you fucking joking? Do you, like, no do you know how brittle no my ego is as it is right now? Like, for right, her to just right, right. knock me out, <laughs> just, I just couldn't recover from something like that right now. My masculinity yeah. just wouldn't be able for it. But they're fierce. These, oh, yeah. they're we had, the we same traits, the right? Uh, yeah, we had, we had women in the gym, uh, not as many, you know, maybe maybe five percent were women, but but for a time we had a really good uh, female fighter in there. And you know, when people are chatting in the gym, one of the topics of conversation is always naturally, you know, who do you think is better, X or Y, George or Tom, Mike or or you know, you think you could take Mike, you know, whatever. Um, and we started talking about this young woman, you know, like, do you think you could actually beat her? And most guys would be like, hell no, no way. There's just no way. I mean, she wasn't small either. She was like a 145 pounder, which means she probably walked around like 160. So she wasn't like some tiny little thing. And some of the guys would say like, you know what? I'm a heavyweight. Uh, probably I can beat her. Probably just by sheer mass and strength, I could beat her. But they didn't think they could beat her on technique, you know? Um, so I have a lot of respect uh, for female fighters. Yeah. But, you know, if you talk about sort of the curves, the bell curves of people, uh, where, where most people are on the, on the right side of the curve, there's not going to be anywhere near near a cage fight. There's fewer women who are kind of crazy enough or imprudent enough uh, to, to want to want to get involved in this. Yeah, there's there's something that happens. I think there's I, I remember distinctly this moment of, you know, when you're sparring, you're hitting pads and you're doing that. And one day you learn you, you learn to throw properly and you connect with a pad and you hear it make that snap and you go, oh, yeah. I did it. It's like it's like pulling right. off a special move in a computer game. And you go, oh, my God, I just did it. And then I did yeah. it again. And you're so excited that you did it. And then you go to spar with someone oh and they're moving. Yeah. And you're like, no, stop moving. I've got this special move. Exactly. I want to I want to hit you with it. And they won't exactly. let you, you know, and, yeah, the, and, pad, the pads have convinced. I, I remember that same feeling like hitting the heavy bag, uh, you know, a few weeks or a few months in and just wailing on it. I'm just wailing on this heavy bag. I'm just, I'm just savaging it. I'm like worried I'm going to break it. I'm like going to knock it off its chains. <laughs> and I start thinking to myself, oh my God. I'm I a beast. A for yeah. this. I might be good. And then going into sparring, I'm like, oh my God, this bag is moving now. It's hitting me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it gives you this false sense of mastery. But it's also, it's also it, it, if you take the sport away from it, just getting rid of those demons, that anger, that pressure inside you. Like you leave the gym, if you didn't have a spar and you just worked a bag and hit pads for, you know, 45 minutes and you leave, there is an enlightenment with that, right? There is a release and a, yeah. a, a zenness that comes with, with just oh, releasing yeah, all that. Yeah.
I would drive home from the gym at night and I would feel high, you know, that it was, it was a combination of the learning and the friendship and the extreme physical exertion and all the good endorphins and all the good chemicals. And I'd drive home with the music turned up loud. And some days after I had performed well, I'd feel tall, you know, I'd drive out of there feeling tall. And there was a time this, again, it was a very brief moment in my life. I was in really good shape. I'd been getting punched in the face a lot. So I was also tough. I'm not tough anymore. I'm not in good shape anymore. But for a time I was, I was tough. And I would do this thing, you know, I'd look around me at a party or at the mall or at the store. And, and then I, I think I could take all these guys, you know, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's, and I did feel that way. But, but, you know, I never, I was never going to do anything with it, but I would, I run those sort of mental simulations and for the first time, I was like, yeah, I think I probably could take that guy, <laughs> even though he's bigger than me. It's funny, than the me. psyche of a man. I did, I did a show yeah. years ago. on Because you never know. It could come down one day and, you know, like riding a bike, you might have to defend yourself or do something and right. bang, it's going to, you're, you're just going to hit a gear. I did a show on alligator wrestling, right? And, and I learned <laughs> how to wrestle alligators. And ever since, I did that fucking like 15 years ago. And I, ever since, I'm just waiting for an opportunity to be in the mall or somewhere and for an alligator to just appear. Someone want to escape from the zoo and everyone's screaming and go, what the fuck are we doing? And I'll, I'll just step up and go, I got this shit, you know? And I got to know how to rope it and fucking I'll have the bastard, you know? And the same with fighting as, as, yeah. as, as you know, you're never going to use it in day to day, but you never know, man. It's not a bad, they're know, not yeah. bad skills to learn. Yeah. The latest book, I know we're not talking about this particularly now, yeah. but I just I just had to ask. The latest book, The Story Paradox, what, what's that about and when's that out? Uh, the Story Paradox is me going back into sort of English professor mode um, and writing about my, my real areas of research, which is basically uh, narrative psychology. That's what I call it. And narrative psychology is a study of how our brains shape stories and how our uh, how stories in turn shape our brains. Um, and so the story paradox is about this research that's come out in the last couple of decades showing that story is, you know, one of the best things in human life, uh, but also one of the worst. It's behind uh, a lot of good in the world, but also behind just about everything bad uh, that you can think of. And so the, the book is about sort of calling awareness to that um, and calling awareness to the way that, you know, it seems to me like at this very moment in time, uh, stories are driving our species mad. And I mean that in both sense of the word uh, mad. They're driving us into these epidemics of intense irrationality, you know, something around conspiracy theories and disinformation and QAnon. These are all stories. These are all narratives. And they're driving us mad in the other sense of, of revving up our rage and revving up our hostility. Um, and this has really been, you know, supercharged by social media and, um, and, and that kind of thing. You like, so you think that like storytelling could be a thing that could kind of, in, in, not to be dramatic, but destroying civilization in a way, right? I, I, I do. I do. You know, story has always uh, done a lot of good in the world, but it's also, also always been dangerous. Story is a volatile thing. I'm talking again, nonfiction storytelling, fiction storytelling, everything in between. Uh, so going back 2,400 years to Plato's Republic, you know, he writes this whole book where he's just obsessed with the danger of story in classical Athens. 
you know, he, 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 he charges the storytellers with revving people up and getting them all emotional about things and planting these immortal ideas in their heads and causing the civilization to not work very well. And he's so concerned about it that he says, you know, maybe what our solution should be is to take all the storytellers, all the people who write our plays and our poems, march them out to the edge of town and throw them over the wall and just get them, out of, get them out of our society entirely. Now we're living inside this big bang of storytelling. That's what I call it, this big bang of storytelling, this incredibly rapid, shocking expansion of the universe of stories in every direction, most of it in narrative form. So we're just, we're just saturating these things. And it's not just that there's more of them, it's also that they're, in, in one sense at least, they're better. They're better and they're more powerful because the technology that gave us all this story has also made these stories much more powerful. All of these make it easier for storytellers to produce what's called narrative transportation. And narrative transportation is this delicious feeling, this sensation that we all love of turning on the TV or opening a book and getting mentally teleported out of our own mundane, boring lives and into these alternative story worlds. And narrative transportation is an authentically altered state of consciousness. When you're transported, this is what you look like. I'm going to make a face like a person who's been hypnotized. <laughs> you are gone. You know, you are gone. You are like putty in the storyteller's hands. And so um, narrative transportation is a state of high attention. We pay incredibly rapt attention during story time. We can pay close attention for hours on end. Nothing in human life produces that effect except storytelling. It's a state of high attention. It's also a state of high suggestibility. Another way to put it is they're a lot more gullible. My God, you wonder with like, you know, 20 years from now with a metaverse or, or whatever else, you know, you're in VR or AR, like you're literally physically, you know, or, or visually anyway, you're going to be brought somewhere else. So like how involved you could be in, in, you know, you don't know if you'd be watching news while in some AR version of the news or, you know, God knows what way it, like it, it, you can penetrate the mind. It's just oh, frightening, oh, I right? Completely, I completely agree. It's hard, it's hard to even visualize it. But, you know, part of my research for this book was to get an Oculus uh, Quest. Which Facebook and, bought recently, I heard. Which Facebook, yeah, which Facebook brought, which is, you know, kind of scary. As soon as I put it on, I was like, oh, you know, oh, this is amazing and terrifying. And I said to my friend, uh, you know, I, I went into this zombie apocalypse game where I was fighting zombies. And the zombies were kind of cartoonish and the landscape was kind of cartoonish, but also kind of realish. Um, but my brain had no trouble with it. But it felt just absolutely authentically real. And I took off the headset and I was sort of, my blood pressure was high and all. It's all geeked up from having these, you know, this, 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 apocalyptic battle with armies of the undead. And I said to my friend that this will change the world and destroy it. So change the world and destroy it. And what I meant by that is once you can go put that thing on and go into a magical land where you can do anything you want to do, you know, from uh, saving the world from undead zombies to mastering your harem mm. to uh, whatever else you might want. Why would you ever want to stop? Why would you ever want to stop being God? Why would you ever want to bother with reality anymore? Frightening, frightening, like just. Yeah. It's an illustration, though, of the story paradox where, where everything good about story is the same as everything bad. Story is the best thing in the world and also the worst. So there's things about the, this whole VR experience that are just wonderful. 
There's things about the big bang of storytelling that are just wonderful, including the fact that we're able to have this podcast and tell each other stories back and forth. This wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago. It's made all of our stories better. So when you go, I mean, compared to, we're both old enough to remember broadcast TV, you know, three channels and these horrible slop they would, they, would, they would put on versus HBO and Netflix and Hulu and all these wonderful options we have now. So um, uh, this isn't all doom and gloom. Story is, is still a wonderful thing. And it's still very important, you know, that we, it's going to be a part of our lives. We just have to sort of learn to tell them in ways that aren't so destructive. It's and just the escapism, sort of each other. like as humans, you know yourself, you're in a little two bed, you know, you're on your own, you put on an Oculus, you're in a mansion. You know, you're yeah. a different person, you look different. You know, you, like, like you say, why would I live in this reality when I can live in this reality? You know, like it's, it's just opens up. I, like you say, I can't actually imagine it. I can, I can start to imagine it and then I just start tripping up over myself. I just, it's just God knows where it could go, you know, it's just good. Interesting, when's that book out? That's called, that's called The Story Paradox. When's that out? Sorry, November 23rd. November 23rd. Jonathan, it was worth the fucking wait, man. You were a legend. <laughs> I really, really, okay. really enjoyed chatting to you. It's been, it's oh. been great, man. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and just, and just uh, hanging out with me and and um, and chatting to me, man. It's been really, really. I great. appreciate it. No. I, I appreciate it, Baz. And I hope we get to do it again. Someday. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And best of luck with the book. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I'll definitely be checking it out. Take care, buddy. Thanks a million, man. Bye. See you later. There you go. I told you. Isn't he brilliant? He's just such a great guy to, uh, to chat to. He was just such a lovely guy. Listen, if you get a chance, read Jonathan's book, The Storytelling Paradox, uh, which is out now, uh, of course, and of course, The Professor in the Cage, which I have fully read now, and it was a gluttonous read. I devoured it. Um, there are fascinating, he's kind of got this fascinating intersection of science and storytelling. Um, he's a fab writer. I'm a big fan. I'm going to throw up, can we put a link in the description? That all cool? Now, um, uh, what do you, what do we think about this one? Uh, I think it could be good exercise or release pent up rage and hitting a bag or pads or getting involved in any type of I think contact sport will give you that you know it's a release which is great uh, not just for men uh, either we joke at the start of the show but I mean for 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 men and women but but what I think is more important it's important kind of to do new things isn't it to that you never just feel like if you ever get that feeling just bored with me we've all got there at some stage it's like is this it is this me and i'm just not going to do anything outside my norm like we're always on this podcast promoting loving yourself but but how can you love yourself if you just bored a shit out of yourself do you know what i mean yeah it happens to us all like it gives you that sick feeling in the pit of your stomach it's like watching your kids playing video games like FIFA on a sunny day when they could literally be outside playing real football. It's that same kind of just something wrong about it, you know, and it, you can feel about yourself like that. I'll tell you what, for what you get from pushing yourself outside your comfort zone, right, is one thing is you meet new people, different people than your regular circle. You learn about yourself, you expose yourself to new ideas and lifestyles and beliefs. It gives you more things to talk about than the same old boring shite you always dribble on about. And um, breaks up the routine of life. Like life can get very monotonous. And um, I think it increases your overall 
satisfaction for the world and it's fruits that bit arsey said that but you know what i mean it alleviates boredom helps you grow as a person makes you become a more interesting person expand your perspective on life boost your overall confidence level but most of all you experience more of what life has to offer and you learn new things that you that can be used in other aspects of your life like when i i when i when i was in the the gym and i was doing mma training and all that from the training in the gym like i learned other things like to let it go to never ruin a good day by wasting time uh, on a bad day i had yesterday like that's what would happen you'd get your ass kicked one day and go i just don't want to go in the next day and then you go in the next day and it's fine but it's it's you know you empower yourself by pr- proving things to yourself about yourself you know sometimes self-doubt comes from that place of doubting yourself and sometimes you just need to prove it not to anyone else but just to yourself also time heals in all aspects in the gym getting your head smashed in or a kick to the leg whatever it is but time heals always and um, to be calm this is a big one for me you can't know everything you just got to roll with things and adapt and move on um i learned not to compare myself to other people in the gym just because that would just be so demotivating yeah but but like these are all aspects of things that were brought to the forefront just by taking up a new sport something that i was uncomfortable with something that you know as much as i'd love to jump back into it is is a commitment you know like uh we spoke about it you know the fastest way to get to where you want to go is slowly i I completely plagiarized my mother there by the way but that's her line but it's true like just just go with it try new things do new things and and i have to say physical like uh, contact sports they're pretty cool they are pretty cool maybe me and you put on some mitts yeah or will you be up for it well maybe I'll, I'll I'll put on bigger mitts just to give me an advantage <laughs> right listen people um, hope you enjoyed the podcast uh, you can you can you can subscribe if you liked it and you can pass it on follow. to your friends you could follow yeah um, leave us a comment if there's other podcasts or episodes that you'd like to hear myself John John and Mahi do we'd, we'd love to hear from you and um, you can follow me on social media get me on Insta at uh, Baz Ashmawi no Bashmawi and you get me on uh, Twitter at uh, Baz Ashmawi um, like always take care of each other and good luck in the cup <laughs>